0: Hello, and welcome back to the newly resurrected Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. We are delighted to be returning from an extended absence and are very glad that you're joining us. My name's Hugh Wood, and I'm a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. Before we begin, I just want to extend my thanks to the show's longtime steward and our Dr Lewis Defraits. Lewis has provided a great example and plenty of assistance during the transition into this new iteration, and the podcast remains indebted to his expertise. As well, I want to thank the wider graduate community here at Cambridge who have supplied fascinating questions for this week's talk and will doubtless supply more as the weeks progress. This week we'll be hosting Angus Bergen, Associate Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. Under discussion will be Prof Bergen's new book project, which will soon present a groundbreaking intellectual history of the internet. Particularly, we'll be looking at the heady, optimistic middle years of the 1990s, as political thinkers imagined the internet as a solution to a pervasive economic malaise. As the internet's promise faded away, and old economic problems re-emerged alongside new sources of anxiety, neoliberalism rose to its position as the dominant paradigm of economic explanation. In charting this rise and offering the first attempt to historicise neoliberalism, Prof Bergen provides a timely intervention into the field of modern intellectual history. In part, this is a story of despair and lost hopes, so we're very sorry this is not necessarily a cheery return to American history podcasting. Prof Bergen won multiple prizes for his first book project, The Great Persuasion, reinventing free Markets since the depression. So we are, however, very grateful that he's taken the time to come chat with us. As well, we're joined by Sam Pallas, who is a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. He is currently looking at the relationship between the anti-bureaucratic turn and social thought in post-war America. As well as his PhD, Sam has written for publications such as The New Statesman and The Independent. Sam's work intervenes in many of the issues we will be discussing, so it's great to have him with us today. Thanks for tuning into this first episode, and without further ado, let's get going. So, hello, thanks for tuning in. Um, We are in a grey and rainy Cambridge. It's also very cold. It is the 21st, and today we've got Angus Bergen and Sam Pallas to discuss Angus's paper, From the New Economy to Neoliberalism. So, Sam, if you just want to introduce yourself.
1: Hi there, my name's uh, Sam Pallas. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at Cambridge, um, and I'm within kind of history, political thought, um, focusing on America, uh, post-war American thought, primarily in the relationship between uh, the anti-bureaucratic kind of turn, critics of the big state um, and social thought. Um, And I'm looking at uh, intellectuals and activists who don't abide
2: by the Cold War
1: consensus.
0: Brilliant. And then, Angus, if you just want to introduce
2: yourself as well, would be brilliant. Yes, I'm uh, Angus Bergen. I'm a historian at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the United States. And um, my work looks at American intellectual history, uh, political thought, history of capitalism uh, since the 1930s.
0: Brilliant. Um, So we're just going to start with some questions about the paper itself um, and then move through towards um, more general questions. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask Angus to introduce the paper, introduce the paper's arguments and just talk about it for a few minutes. So, uh, you know, for the benefit of the people who've not had the chance to read the paper itself.
2: Uh, Yeah, thank you so much. I'm very excited to uh, talk about this work today. It's the first time that I've presented it, uh, so I'm eager for feedback Uh, The paper that I distributed is taken from a larger book project on social theories of the internet. So that book project ranges uh, pretty widely across uh, theories of virtual reality, uh, ideas about what cyberspace was going to mean for personal freedoms, uh, and uh, all the way to the uh, material that I'm covering in the paper for today, which is really more about history of economic thought. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to range uh, across some of the other themes, some of the connective threads running between what, what is in the end, you know, kind of narrower story here, focus on economists and policymakers to other uh, further afield theorists in different academic academic disciplines who are thinking about the Internet as well. Uh, as far as this paper is concerned, I have a couple of uh, objectives that I was trying to achieve with it. The first is to, uh, to look back at the 1990s um, and uh, try to decenter uh, the uh, the kind of uh, stock market mania is the primary uh, implication of the, the rise of the internet and instead focus on some of the other ways in which it was transforming underlying assumptions about the patterns of political economy in ways that i think reverberated pretty widely across policymaking in that decade and helped to capture something that some recent historical work on the 90s to my mind hasn't uh, hasn't necessarily captured that well which was its extraordinary brief but extraordinary moment of optimism Um, in our own era today I think defined by fairly bleak outlooks about the trajectory of uh, the Mm -hmm. environment, about the trajectory of political economy, uh, international relations, and and certainly technology as well, a lot of alarmism about the direction of technology. It actually seems like a very strange world to reopen this moment of heady optimism between roughly between 1993 and 1999 or so, Mm -hmm. when lots of people, uh, including those I talk about in the paper, thought that the trajectory of technology was opening a pathway to a substantially better world. So the paper itself uh, looks at a couple of areas where people were uh, telling optimistic stories uh, about the economy, largely draped around this idea of the new economy, which was kind of a voguish term that that, uh, was widespread from the early 90s through the early 2000s. And I'll just briefly elaborate on those and then I'd love to open it up to conversation. So the first one is about economic growth. I try to, at the start of the paper with its set piece, just remind people of how bleak perceptions of economic growth were in the early 1990s. There was a widespread notion that growth was um, going to be at sort of permanently lower rates than it had been in the, uh, the uh, early post-war era, and that led to fairly bleak assessments of both the trajectory of the American economy and its place in the in the broader world. Uh, and then, you know, by the late 90s, that had utterly transformed. And there were all kinds of exciting stories about how we were living in a rapid growth uh, that was uh, potentially going to go on for as far as I could see. Uh, The second story is about inequality, is there was a a little period there where economists were actually pretty optimistic about the trajectory of of inequality, and uh, that certainly worked its way into a lot of Clinton-Gore rhetoric, um, and uh, part of the reasons were related to technology and some of the opportunities that new technologies opened for the transformation of work. Uh, and the third story is about contingency. You know, now we talk a lot about contingent labor and there's a lot of anxiety about, uh, you know, the ways that it manifests a risk society and everything else, right? This sort of deep post-war story of the, the rise of contingent work. That's a long story, but in the 90s, I want to say there was this real moment where, uh, where the notion was among uh, certain corners of the business press and, uh, and so on that this was opening up, uh, that that new technologies, especially the internet, was opening up new opportunities for a sort of free agency status among workers, no longer necessarily so geographically tied to one place uh, with a broader range of options in front of them. They could use that to assert a certain kind of agency over their economic lives that had uh, eluded workers in the past. So what I'm trying to do in the paper is put together this whole world of, of optimistic rhetoric and, um, and then uh, talk a little bit about how it all came apart in the first decade of the new millennium as a way of helping us to understand how current debates about neoliberalism in ways that I think are sometimes a little bit hidden mm-hmm. are deeply inflected with uh, assumptions about the trajectory of technology. So when, when people are more optimistic about the direction technology might take us. They're much more inclined to look charitably upon certain uh, structural patterns in their economic lives. And then when that optimism fades away, it opens the doors to a world of uh, critical thought that that we now inhabit that has been naturalized for us, but much less so for many people.
0: Brilliant. Um, so thanks a lot for that. And I think we're just going to start with Sam. You want to start with your questions? Great.
1: One? Yeah, thank you for taking us uh, through that, Angus. And it was a really rich paper. And it's absolutely great to kind of see this kind of sprawling kind of analysis of, of this of this era of uh, kind of optimism. Um, so it's very kind of taken by what you were saying about uh, this, yeah, this particular... Uh, era and it emerged and and the optimism that was kind of put forward and I was just thinking about a chapter you wrote in another collection, uh, yeah. Beyond the New Deal Order, um, which was about kind of 1950s and the 1960s. Um, we had management theorists and intellectuals talking about this kind of transition from Fordism to post-Fordism, and it kind of ushered in a new benign kind of economic um, order, um, you know, diminishing inequality, hierarchy, and kind of enhancement of personal kind of autonomy. Um, and there was a kind of particular... Kind of view that it would override this kind of Fordist um, kind of oppression around pathologies and kind of alienation. And I was just wondering whether you could put the kind of centre left um, optimists of the 1990s um, into conversations with the kind of optimists of the, the 50s and 60s and kind of what are the kind of discontinuities, continuities. Um, that that are
2: there? Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a great question. Thanks so much. I mean, automation is, a, it, in some ways, it's a challenging question because automation discourse is sort of one field of discourse, and discussion of the internet is another, right? And so, when you're talking about automation, there's always, and there certainly was, I tried to talk about this in the context of the '50s. There's always this specter of a threat, right? The initial image of automation in almost any context is 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 one of technological anxiety. It's a notion of worker displacement, right? Um, And so uh, the the people I was writing about in the 1950s who had a kind of optimistic tenor in thinking about automation were very cognizant that they were swimming against a tide, right? They were going, you know, there was obviously deep anxieties about unemployment that were tied to technologies going back to the 1930s, the Great Depression and, and so on. Um, New anxieties emerging in the 1950s with the emergence of these dramatic new technologies that were uh, leading, as I I described in that paper, to these pretty vivid images of workerless factories, right? Or factories with just one or two people sitting at a machine and then the products are all being uh, spewed out. So obviously there's a a lot of anxiety uh, in the broader culture in the 1950s about how uh, that Story will play out, and whether it will lead people to lose their jobs uh, and potentially um, lose a degree of economic security that comes with them. the The arguments in the 1950s in favor of automation were fairly fairly abstract. You know, what they what, what I think the, the the people who were arguing for automation then thought that they had to do was was figure out how to take this abstract notion that well, actually, technological unemployment it's it's you know, pretty debatable. Arguably, doesn't happen. There are many ways in which Uh, these emerging technologies, yes, displace workers, but in aggregate terms, workers end up being better off, you know, pretty abstract arguments that they had to figure out how to render in human terms. When you're looking at the 1990s rhetoric about the internet, I think it loses a lot of that overlay because this new technology wasn't inherently one that it intuitively registered for people as, as primarily having the effect of worker displacement, right? And so it was possible for a lot of these figures in the center left to approach it not from a defensive position of trying to articulate why something that seems threatening is uh, in fact a source of enthusiasm and excitement, but rather a kind of raw unbridled optimism, right? That you really see coursing through the center left in that period. Um, So, I mean, there are many different directions I could go in response to that question, but I guess the first one is, is, is that issue of defensiveness. I mean, you don't, this was a moment I think maybe the one moment in the history, the modern history of the center-left, when it does not sound defensive. Rather, it's able to sound visionary and hopeful, not like it's trying to defend itself from potential critiques from both left and right, but rather laying out its own visionary program. And I think that's because of the optimistic laws that people were able to place on this technology at this one early moment in its development. Great. Uh, Thank you. Um, And... Moving
1: on to another kind of centerpiece um, of, the, of the paper, and there's so much to um, unpack. So just just trying to kind of get to some of the the central claims um, is about uh, you know this attempt to historicise neoliberalism, um, and this is quite a new kind of endeavour. Daniel Rogers has attempted uh, a kind of a, a, a versions of this, and there have been kind of other attempts, but from my understanding this would be one of one of the first kind of um you know holistic um presentations of this. So um you you chart um that uh, kind of um, there was a kind of centre of, of scholars who um from the kind of critique of the, the new economy and this optimism which then kind of fades in in 2018 um that um that basically this kind of critique kind of emerges and you say that neoliberalism is a reinterpretation of the second half of the 20th century in light of the loss of technological promises of the 21st. And as I kind of see it, this is you know, building upon your work in the great uh, persuasion, um, where you kind of look at the now infamous Montpellier Society, who seem seen to be kind of key uh, progenitors of the kind of the market turn of of the 1970s. And as I understand it, you you kind of look more at the kind of polarity of these these thinkers rather than the kind of homogeneity of them and. Um, and they've often been kind of called, you know, kind of neo-liberal uh, kind of thought collectives. So, um, I'm just wondering where this kind of leaves us mm-hmm. um, in in terms of how we kind of conceive of economic and political change yeah. um, in in the kind of post-war, you know, era. How should we kind of ca- categorise? Uh, the changes that have happened, kind of politically yes. and economically. Great. What categories, you know, should we be uh, looking at? Um, and and do we need to reconsider the kind of periodization we been using?
2: Yeah, great. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. So let me. I'll. I'll maybe grab onto the uh, the bit that you asked there about neoliberalism as an analytical rubric, and both what I'm trying to say about it in this paper, and how that fits into how people talk about political economy today. The, uh, so the first thing I'd say is that I, I really wanna emphasize here that you know, lots of people now talk about neoliberalism, but neoliberalism as a concept itself has a history, right? This is part of, part of what I, I wanna to gesture towards. I'm only able to very briefly gesture towards it in the paper, but I think it's an important, uh, an important fact for us to reckon with that neoliberalism not only tells us about you know, the broad structural and ideological changes over the course of the second half of the 20th century, but also the fact that we're using that term tells us something about ourselves. Um, in some ways, almost it's more revealing in, in that sense. Uh, and in, in a way, I li- I lived through some of that history. I mean, obviously, people have used the term neoliberalism going way back. There are various invocations in the going back to the '50s and then the the, um, the '70s, and then in conversations about the Washington Consensus and the. Uh, late 80s, early 90s. That, uh, so it's it's not like the term itself didn't have a history until the early 2000s. But, I mean, if you do the simplest kind of keyword searches, you can see it just explodes in the early 2000s. And that's a fact that we have to reckon with. Why are people suddenly talking mm. about neoliberalism when that was not really a major term of art until the new millennium? Uh, so there are many answers to that question, and um, I'd, I'd love to talk about any of them. The one I want to bring out in this paper is... is uh, one explanation for what I see as a kind of curious interregnum. There was this long wave of scholarship on whether the post-industrial society through post-Fordism kind of crested in the 1980s to the very early 1990s, and there were significant works published thereafter, but it was kind of a quiet period. and That that mode of analysis began to peter out a little bit. And then there's this kind of pause in the 1990s without all that much relevant work uh, on the sort of broad-gauge assessments of the trajectory of political economy, again, some important exceptions. But then... Uh, in the early 2000s, you start to have people talking a lot about neoliberalism. I pull out a couple moments in the paper. You know, a seminal moment, certainly, is uh, the publication of David Harvey's book, and then um, so on from there. Uh, so uh, part of what I want to say is that this is, this is in part, conditioned by presumptions about the trajectory of technology. Right? And that when people are start talking about neoliberalism, it's in, in part because of what's starting to become a kind of deep-seated disillusionment with those promises. But the relative suppression of those kinds of concerns within academic discourse in the late 1990s tells us something about that era as well. And that is that it was a moment when some of these center-left ideas about the capacity to foster economic growth, broaden educational opportunity, create these kinds of virtuous cycles that I try to chart in this new economy discourse, while certainly not universally persuasive, there had no lack of critics of the center-left in the 1990s, uh, was, was sufficiently plausible to structure conversations about political economy uh, such that the kinds of critiques that are, common of neoliberalism today seem almost like the air we breathe in academia, right? Just assumptions about the trajectory of political economy wouldn't necessarily look all that familiar to a lot of people who are talking about political economy in the 1990s. Uh, And so, you know, in reckoning with the, the reasons why we have turned towards this analytical language, I think it's helpful to think about that as in part inflected by implicit narratives that we tell ourselves about the future on the basis of projections from our technological present. And those have changed dramatically, and I think that that is feeding to, into our discourse in ways that we don't always recognise.
1: Can I just push yeah. on, uh, on, 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 on one point? I'm just wondering how, in light of this kind of historicisation, um, and um, in The Great persuasion, you know, you, you kind of talk in the introduction about, you know, not using presentist terms to try and categorize, um, you know, which are kind of a plural kind of group. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, the market turn, uh, yeah. whatever how you want to characterize it, you know, do you, do you think, in, in light of this historicization, that neoliberalism as an economic settlement? Or a, a kind of period of kind of a political order mm-hmm. um, is the way we should be kind of conceptualizing... <laughs> yeah, uh, I've gotten this, that question the, about the Great
2: Persuasion as well, yeah.
1: This turn, um, and do you think this kind of historical point adds something to it? Or, yes, yeah, yeah.
2: so, um, well let me just take that question just on the merits about neoliberalism less in relation to what I say in the paper, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I, I think my, my thoughts on that might diverge a little yeah. bit from what I'd say in the paper, but I think it's a really important question. So, in saying that neoliberalism as a concept has a history... Mm-hmm. and in saying that as a as a concept like any concept it's you know p- people here in cambridge would readily acknowledge right it has a kind of intended rhetorical force right it's 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 uh it's tr- by saying something is reflective of neoliberalism you're you're doing something right you're trying to frame the history in terms that it is itself a kind of action in the world i think that's fair to say um so in 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 observing that i'm not trying to say that it the term is useless (laughs) right it's actually very important I mean and 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 that's reflected in an extraordinary body of terrific work that has been produced on neoliberalism since uh, the middle decade of the 2000s right Um, so um, what does the concept of neoliberalism do in the context of the United States in the context of US history I think it does a couple things one and I think that they're important actually to this paper one is that it, it re-centers our attention from a story that tends to be driven by right-wing conservative politics to one that's focused on transpartisan politics, right? So a lot of what people writing on neoliberalism have done is to say, um, well, actually, just as important as the story of the rise of, you know, sort of market-oriented thinking on the right is the story of leftist adoptions of those ideas, right? So Clinton Gore, are test cases of that. There's a wonderful book by Lily Geissmer that came out fairly recently called Left Behind that really digs into some of that center-left market-oriented discourse. Um, So, uh, you know, another thing that the language of neoliberalism does is say that these phenomena, these political phenomena are transnational. Um, You you can't only take the United States in isolation. Um, There are a lot of similar phenomena that are happening across different national boundaries. And so if you talk about conservative politics in an American context, it tends to be a little bit more of a bounded domestic story. A story about neoliberalism emphasizes connections and likenesses across across borders. Um, so when you when you talk about I mean there are other things you could say that neoliberalism does too. But I, you know another really important one that I'll just mention briefly is I think it and this is a very interesting difference from post-Fordism is it emphasizes an intellectual project right? Uh, it's really when you look at people writing about neoliberalism. It's you you know you look at Foucault and he almost becomes Despite himself a kind of intellectual historian when he's writing, when he's you know, doing his lectures on the birth of biopolitics, David Harvey becomes much more intellectual historical there um, when he's writing about neoliberalism than he was earlier in his career. Right? So there's a way in which talking about neoliberalism seems to pull people into thinking about this set of phenomena as not merely a structural story about the trajectory of economic life, but an intellectual story uh, about the transformation of ideas. I think all that's that's uh, very helpful analytically. I mean, I think the great things about older literatures on American conservatism too, right? All these terms help to reframe our understanding of the past in ways that um, you know meaningfully contribute to our historical understanding and discourse. But they can also become totalizing, right? And suddenly, when everybody's talking about a set of ideas, it gets a little bit hard to escape that framework, which always has strengths and limitations. Um, so I think part one of the powers of history as a discipline is to take concepts that are naturalized in our current discourse and remind us that they too are historical, that they're contingent, that there are other ways of seeing history that can sometimes be suppressed uh, by the uniformity of a certain conceptual language. And you know, it's arguable that the idea of neoliberalism has become so widespread in academia today that it, that it becomes important for us to historicize it and remind ourselves that there are other ways to look at the past as well. So I'm not really trying to argue that in this paper, but what I, what I am trying to just hint at is that this, this discourse is a product of a moment and a moment that had some underlying structural and technological conditions. And um, you know, that might create an opening for us to realize that if our structural technological assumptions were to change yet again, this might not be the best set of concepts for us to think with.
0: Brilliant, um, so thanks a lot for that, brilliant answers. I'm just going to kind of um, ask you about the methodology of this and how you're intending to do this because it's brilliant and I think probably the, the inherent fascinating intervention of the paper is to claim the 1990s and the 2000s and the early millennium for history and for historical analysis I just want to push back and ask whether that is possible and whether you think, I mean clearly you do because you're trying it but these things are happening, you know People are discussing neoliberalism, and they're writing books. You know, when do you stop the analysis and, and publish a thing, so to speak, in the sense that this is going on? So, yeah, how do you write that history of, of now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, if that, if that's a big issue, um, and there are obviously, I mean, there there, there are di- different ways to answer that. There are some particular challenge. I mean, some of the obvious challenges of writing recent history are one is archival. Um, I mean, you know, you can find archives, but they're often much harder to come by when people are still alive um, or when their papers haven't been processed yet. Um, And another is obviously conceptual. It's, um, you know, these are, uh, I like to think of myself as not that old yet, but this is still a period I remember, you know, um, uh, that I lived through, even if I wasn't thinking too much about some of these phenomena at the time. Um and that makes you yourself complicit and it makes uh it makes it a little bit harder to achieve the degree of historical distance that usually our profession aspires to. Uh, that said, it all you know there are upsides. Um and I really want to emphasize that uh here. Um, one uh, is that there's a lot of low hanging fruit for historians. And, um, and so you know, historians tend to start to historicize material when they're roughly 25 years before uh, the moment when they're writing. That seems to be the sort of space of dignity between journalism and history, at least as agreed <laughs> upon by, by professional convention. And, um, and so it, there's an opportunity for those who kind of move into that territory to put together some big stories that then establish kind of, uh, narratives and conditions that other historians refine and, and, and respond to and can drill down into. And so, I, you know, with this, I wasn't actually intending to write a book that was centered so much in the 1990s when I began. I was writing a chapter of a book and there was just so much material that I couldn't restrain myself. I found the chapter became 35,000 words and then I thought, okay, I have to break this apart and turn all these different sections into a book because I otherwise can't. I, there's just too much to say. The other thing I'd say, and I'm reckoning with this as an intellectual historian, is that um, one of the central challenges conventionally of writing the history of the present is that we're still occupying the world that we're, we're writing about. But you know, in some ways, this world of 1990s sort of cyberspace utopianism just feels like such a world apart now. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the same, almost like you're writing about people, you know, it's people's thought worlds in the 1670s, right? I mean, it's it's um, it's so so utterly contradicts so many of our cultural assumptions about the implications of technology that it actually takes a kind of work to situate yourself in the thought space of these, these writers uh, to put together what the logic was that they found convincing, right? And that's the fundamental work of the intellectual historian. So I don't think the temporal proximity is always means conceptual proximity. Um, sometimes you can be working with sources that are quite recent in time, and yet they preserve some of that strangeness that it is the role of the intellectual historian to unravel and to figure out a way to make it familiar to audiences today. Um, so uh, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm trying to do in this paper. It obviously becomes, I'll just mention one other thing, which is what I do, the biggest danger and my biggest anxiety with this project is that you know, it's a, a lot of these stories are rise and fall stories. So there's, in this paper that we are discussing for today, there's the rise of the new economy and then its kind of fall and neoliberalism emerges in its wake. And it's always this subtle implication with rise and fall stories that, that something was wrong with all the narratives that led to the rise and that that contributed to the fall. And there's a kind of rightness to the cynicism that emerges in the wake of its collapse. Right? Um, and that runs the risk of validating our sensibilities in the present, right? our kind of technological pessimism that's, um, that's so widespread today. Um, and I, I don't want to do that. Uh, I, you know, Actually, p- part of what I'd like to do, maybe a little less so in this paper than in some of the, um, the other sections of the book, but is to help us to recapture the extraordinary optimism of that moment to open up pathways to thinking optimistically once again. Mm-hmm. Um, not only to mock it as naive, but to tell us, you know, well, maybe there is some transgressive or revolutionary potential to this technology, which we're just forgetting uh, because of the the disillusioning experiences of the last 20 years. Uh, And so, you know, ideally, I I create a little bit of dynamic tension between the perspectives of the 1990s and the perspectives that follow um, rather than merely validating our sensibilities in the present.
0: No, thanks a lot. So I'm just going to ask you a bit about you have, as you say, got this rise and fall narrative, and the eleven framed as, you know, the failure of, of the internet to achieve its promise. Um, and I think a bit of that is related to kind of sources that you're drawing on for this. Yes. So you've got the kind of standard assortment, I suppose, of what intellectual historians deal with: so academics, think tanks, political operatives, so on. And I think you tell something of kind of an official story. So I'm wondering how that story would look different from the perspective of non-traditional sources. So what I've got in my head here is the kind of figureheads behind the rise of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum and these kind of shadow institutions of finance and commerce which have just kind of recently come into mainstream view. So what do figures in that world think about the promise of the internet and how are they going to kind of factor into the story that you're telling? Um, So kind of despite these repeated and spectacular failures with seeing, you know, FDX just crashed, crypto winter, all that, they seem optimistic about what the future holds. So is the promise here about how it's not really realised for the conventional actors, but rather for actors who aren't kind of included in this analysis. So is it not so much a narrative of decline or lost hopes, but really about how traditional sources of political authority have struggled to direct that power right. and the potential of the internet into the kind of direction that they want it to go.
2: Right. Um, okay. Yeah, so there, that's a very rich question, and um, I, I guess I'll, I'll uh, address a couple of parts in it in turn. How do you wish? So the what first ones? one is I'm not 100% sure about the distinction between traditional and non-traditional sources. Because yeah, sure. every subject has its own traditional sources. Right? and um, so. You know, uh, there are certain ways that I'm very conscious of that this paper looks at um, what could be construed as very traditional sources, right? I mean, these are largely people in a kind of policy world, Mm -hmm. um, traversing between academic economics and the the Clinton administration, especially areas of the Clinton administration that were focused on economic concerns. Uh, It's uh, not coincidentally overwhelmingly white male actors. which is, is in part reflective of this entire new economy discourse, right? Um, there is an underlying uh, uh, racialized and gendered quality to the discourse, which overlaps with a lot of futurist or uh, futurology uh, and certainly overlaps with some patterns in the economics profession and uh, the policy world writ large, right? So yes, that um, there is it, some, something about it that might look traditional. At the same time, I, want to emphasize that you know a lot of there's a, still a kind of history of technology that's told through silicon valley mm-hmm. um that leads to some you know both a, a, a sort of journalistic history of the, the rise of silicon valley and then um, some critical histories that have emerged in its wake but i you know i think one of the most powerful uh turns in the history of computing over the last decade or so has been trying to push that outwards right in other directions and one direction is into academia and into some, some academic disciplines that uh, you know, we're thinking alongside technological developments but in ways that I don't think have really been processed all that much before. Um, so um, you know, a little less so in this paper, but for instance, what, uh, another section where I look at the history of virtual reality and ideas about virtual reality we start to dive into some sources that we're thinking a lot about the implications of the internet for problems that fall far outside the sort of conventional Silicon Valley story, right? So for left critics and dealing with problems of postmodernism, thinking about um, ways in which virtual reality experiences could free us from some of the challenges of reconciling um, affiliative identity with biological constraints, right? Um, If we can project ourselves... As we uh, envision ourselves in a virtual world, we achieve a kind of power over our self-presentation that that could be challenging in a terrestrial environment, right? Um, And as such, transform the possibilities for postmodern politics. Um, Or, and this gets to the question about digital currencies, you know, uh, there's um, this strange little uh, journal called Extropy that I write about where... People were thinking about how to embrace uh, all these new technologies as ways to sort of manifest their their what looks like more like a kind of right wing will to power or sometimes you know libertarian visions mm. and, and, and so on. Um, and entropy plays and the one place I've seen it written extensively about is the recent very good book by Finn Brunton on the history of digital currencies, right? Ideas about digital currencies and so there are ways in which that world that you're talking about from the last two decades. Uh, right centered on issues related to the possibilities for digital currency. I mean, you, you see people talking about digital currencies back in the 80s and 90s in these sub-communities, right? Mm-hmm. Often with a kind of cyber-libertarian gloss, uh, anarchist uh, possibilities, uh, and, and so on. Um, what what I see that rhetoric from the last 20 years, or really from the last 15 years, as reflective of is, is a kind of echo of these early conversations, right? It's the communities, and they're certainly there... Versions of these communities in a variety of different contexts, who are are still imbibing and reproducing some of the utopian rhetoric from the 1990s in a context that is much more broadly skeptical. Um, So um, you know, there's no lack of um, of enthusiasm for digital currency, Um, but I think I think to me at least when I when I read. Those works and historical treatments of those works, um, it's a much more limited utopian vision. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a utopian vision that, to many people who read it, reads immediately as dystopian, <laughs> or at least has, has a kind of dark undercurrent in terms of its perception of human nature and the possibilities for politics. Um, and uh, even as it does echo some of those utopian tropes from from its earlier inception.
1: Great. Um, so to pick up on kind of different framings and different ways they kind of approach the nineties and how we're seeing shifts in political economy. Um, just wondering about the environment. Yeah. And this has been, you know, pretty long durée kind of story, um, and there's a lot of thought which starts in the nineteen fifties in particular. I'm thinking of Murray Bookchin, for example he writes in 1952, synthetic uh, kind of environment, and then he's talking about post-scarcity yeah. um, and a quite kind of utopian kind of uh, vision of things. So I'm just wondering how the environment fits into this story of a kind of economic uh, change um, and how it feeds into what also comes out of the end of, of, of your story as well. So it, it features, but I'm just wondering how, how it um, interacts or, or is this a, a separate kind of uh, kind of train?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll highlight one source that was just it was so interesting to me In so a big figure in the paper who I haven't talked that much about in this podcast is Al Gore. Um, and he's you know, a fascinating figure in part because he he pivots, I mean, I, I argue, I wasn't able to elaborate on it as much in the paper as I wanted, but I argue that it was really kind of identifiable to you know, the moment when he comes under criticism for having talked about having taken the initiative and inventing the internet and uh, starts to want to distance himself from some of his uh, uh, techno-enthusiastic rhetoric because it becomes a source of mockery. Um, but, you know, he, he pivots in a sense from being this sort of paragon of new economy techno-utopianism to being at the forefront of uh, mobilizing popular concerns about climate change um, uh, not too long thereafter. And, uh, you know, there's one speech I, I was looking at. Um, I want to say it was from 1997, but I have to look back to see, but where, you know, he talks about the possibilities that, the technolo- that these new technologies that he's looking at are, are, are going to be beneficial for the environment as well, right? That in a sense, the, ride, the, the, the dissemination of computing allows for sophisticated modeling um, that will allow uh, people to have better knowledge of their effects on the environment in ways that will ultimately redound to the, the benefit of policymakers who are concerned for long-term outcomes. And that struck me as so characteristic of this moment in a way, uh, you know, a, a moment when there is a real sense that, uh, you know, obviously discourse on the environment was looked different in the 90s than it did in the 2000s, but there also was, you know, with all of the concerns in, in that moment, um, there still was a sense that technologies could be harnessed to resolve them um, rather than um, you know the, the overwhelming impetus in, in the decades that followed towards seeing technology-driven uh, growth as a central problem um, in uh, in the trajectory of human relations with the natural world, right? Um, and so, and that's you know, and it, it's it's certainly not a novel observation. But I mean, there are lots of ways in which concerns about growth that have have arisen in the last 15 years are redolent of concerns about growth that were widespread in the early 1970s. Right? Um, and so if, I think in trying to create a, a, a sort of long-duré narrative of intellectual history and the environment, we do have to look at this 90s period as a period of relatively suppressed concerns in relation to what came before and what came after. And you know, little moments like that moment in Gore's speech tell us that it's not, it's not entirely coincidental. It, that is in part a narrative about the relationship between technology and the natural world that looked quite different then.
0: Brilliant. So I think for time reasons, just going to move through towards the questions at the end, Open this up to a more kind of general discussion. Um, So I'll kind of start throughout the paper again with Al Gore, Bill Clinton, they're kind of seeing, there's this quote you've got that you say that the internet kind of mimic virtues of both capitalism and democracies, Mm -hmm. which I think intuitively makes a lot of sense. Um, And I kind of just want to hear you speak on that, you know, where do you stand on that in the past few years? Have internet kind of been a force for democracy or has it had kind of adverse effects in that regard? Um, You know, I've got in mind here election interference in 2016, the role that Facebook plays in mobilising voters today, um, and as well issues like spread of misinformation, you know, anti-vax movement, QAnon um, and, you know, the entrenching of um, political polarisation across the spectrum. So do you think the kind of that promise has been borne out or again are you seeing um, the opposite, basically?
2: Yeah. That's a great question. Um, well, yeah, as a good historian, I'm reluctant to center my own, my own perspective on what the ultimate political implications of the Internet are, but I will say a couple things. I mean, the, the biggest thing I'd say about both, both, both misinformation and polarization is that these are just total inversions of rhetorics about the Internet in the 1990s, right? Um, and so in relation to misinformation, I mean, what is the, the early going back to the 1940s? and What is the, the, the classic story about the Internet? is that it will be a, a source of um, more and better knowledge uh, about the world around you, right? We're going to be more efficient in sharing knowledge and information with one another. And that, as a result, that will most likely lead to more informed citizenry and a more transparent and effective democratic politics. And it's a story that's told again and again across disciplines and uh, in different environments straight through the 1990s. Um, and so the story of the last two decades has been a story of reckoning with all the ways in which that prediction seems to have gone awry, and that actually more efficient exchange of information doesn't seem to necessarily lead to better information. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, you know, going back to a paper from the 1990s described um, cyber balkanization' right? a kind of striking term from that era, it describes how when people have access to more information, they, you know they tend to privilege information that... Um, both they privilege social connections with, with people who are like them maybe not geographically proximate but share their views um, mm-hmm. and as a result you know share information that tends to be more aligned with their perceptions of the world right? so these concerns were starting to emerge in the mid to late 1990s in pockets here and there and then they sort of rise to a boil in the new millennium and especially with rise of social media Mm -hmm. and all these you know very sophisticated ways in which corporations kind of piggybacked on that observation to try to construct technological worlds that specifically hew to that human instinct to to uh, to read material that validates our own pre-existing perceptions and within political science there's a big literature that emerged in the same period on polarization um, and you know kind of Argument uh, uh, that uh, that that and this is highly contested within political science literatures, but an argument that the polarization, the political polarization of the last two decades, has been in part mediated by technology. Um, and again, you know, it's striking to look back at the, not to constantly dwell on this, but to look back at the '90s, and there was a concern in some ways about excessive consensus, right? <laughs> um, and you know, what is more sort of of a consensual framing of politics than the 1990s center left, right? This. Uh, the third way, the attempt to triangulate, um, and you can find these these concerns in the literature that there's just an ins- insufficient, uh, in a sense, insufficient polarization mm-hmm. of political beliefs reflected in national political parties. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to. It might sound wishy-washy, but I don't want to draw a line in the sand as to what perspective is right or wrong, or that there's some inherent tendency to uh, to certain technologies to produce certain kinds of outcomes. But I think it is useful for us in this environment that just kind of presumes that um, that polarization and misinformation are sort of the problems of democratic politics in the in the, twi- in the 21st century and that you know part mediated by technologies is it's, it's tr- just to remember how historically bounded those concerns are um, and how different how differently people were talking about the implications of technology and the shape of of national politics in the United States in the 1990s.
0: Brilliant. So, Sam, if you want to have one final question.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, There's so much to unpack. Um, But I'm just very interested um, in terms of uh, the kind of critique of the new economy that emerges in kind of 2008 uh, onwards, and the impact it has both upon the centre-left and the left. So, in the paper, you seem to infer that Obama and Clinton, to an extent, embrace certain themes um, that is put forward in the kind of critique of the new economy around flexible working, yeah. around displacement of jobs. We now see um, Biden moving towards productivism, yeah, you know actively embracing it. Um, some have called this a neo mercantilist uh, yeah. age, um, and then on the left however we want to define that uh, uh, whether that's Democratic Socialists of America whether that is AOC whether that is Bernie Sanders Um, there seems to be an accommodation with the administrative state in a way that the left had been traditionally quite uneasy about from you know uh, 939 you know onwards I'm thinking for example Wisconsin school the corporate liberal thesis um, you know uh, Michael Harrington uh, being kind of put forward as a kind of uh, reformist and I'm just wondering whether um, this critique in both ways has kind of led uh, uh, centre-left and the left to a, an accommodation with the administrative state um, which wasn't uh, there in the, in the, in the 90s um and wasn't there for, for for the left in you know for parts of 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 the fifties and sixties bar you know certain moments McGovern etc cetera, etc cetera. um
2: yeah well so let me let me just say to begin with that um, this is something I've really wrestled with in sorting out this paper is that it's this longer history of the center left. Obviously, I'm writing about a period in the 90s, but the center-left has existed before the 90s, and it's existed after the 90s. Um, and so I, I, I certainly don't want to present this as a kind of, you know, er text of what the center-left is. Um, at the same time, I, I think it, there's just no question that this that this 1990s period was kind of the heyday of the center-left, right? Um, so yeah, I've thought a little bit about it. you look at people like Paul Sangas, you know, or sort of Atari Democrats who were talking about technology, often trying to provide an overlay of narratives about economic growth well before the 1990s. Um, and, but what I what I would say is that, you know, first of all, that that was not necessarily the primary message of the center-left in the, in the 80s. When you look at the sort of her texts on, uh, on, you know, sort of Washington monthly thinking, neo- neoliberal thinking in that era, right, and it is not, it technology is really not at the center of it at all. Um, and you look at the you know, stuff that was coming out in the early uh, Clinton campaign, certainly Clinton in 1988, I mean, he's just not foregrounding technology as a centerpiece of their story. That comes in in the 90s, right? Um, and it has this heyday. Um, and then, I, you know, I, I think that it's, it's defanged of the center-left since that whole narrative fell apart in the early 2000s, and it's part of why so much of center-left politics now seems kind of bloodless, um, lacks a certain visionary quality. It's, a, it's hard to maintain a politics of utopian uh, moderation when you lose that engine that can actually take moderate politics to some sort of utopia, which was technology. I mean, that's my, that's, that's, that's my argument here. So, um, and you know, so you end up with a politician like Obama, um, who, um, you know, in many ways is reflective of the center left and, and still an ascendant center left, but sh- shorn of a lot of this technological utopianism. And I think he found a lot of his u- utopian energy and sort of vision for a post-racial politics um, that um, looked away from... Uh, the, the kinds of stories that these people in the 90s were telling about political economy to try to find different ways of energizing a center-left political program. Um, as far as the administrative state is concerned, I don't I don't have a, a clear answer to that. I think it's a very, the relationship between the left and the administrative state, as you say, is very complicated, um, and I'm not sure that the new economy discourse takes a position on that so clearly one way or another. You know, there's... Um, I, I certainly don't want to emphasize that this is a free market discourse necessarily, because from the beginning, all of these center-left politicians are emphasizing the importance of state infrastructure, to uh, the importance of technology investment. Right? This needs to be there needs to be something that looks like an industrial policy, um, and so the you know the state is constitutive to a lot of this literature on the new economy. It's not, it's not a sort of anti-statist vision, even as it's picking up on a lot of these rhetorical tropes of sort of entrepreneurialism a kind of romance of contingency that I'm pulling out here that has a kind of anti-statist history or anti-statist gloss so uh, there's a way in which you might see it as a kind of sublimation of those rhetorics right there's got some some embrace of anti-statist sensibilities but with an overlay of the crucial role of the state in fostering the, the right kind of competitive environment the right kind of educational environment to supercharge growth to achieve as you know as, as Al Gore says I quote in the paper when he talks about it. You know uh, fostering this kind of innovation this dynamism is the highest duty of the policymaker. Right? that is that is a state project but a state project that is driven in part by a, you know notion visions of uh, the free and un- unencumbered economic agent that it can help to induce and energize um, and uh, yeah arguably once that vision comes apart you again see sharper lines being drawn between the center left um, and you know variations on more radical leftist politics that uh, were evident in the 1990s, but but a, a little bit um, a, a little bit more easily bridged.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you very much. I think we're going to end there, but it was really interesting to us on all parts. So thank you very much, Sam, for joining us, taking the time to prepare questions, etc. And Angus, thank you very much for coming in, taking the time to sit down.
2: Thanks so much, you and Sam. It was a lot of fun. Great to be here. Thank you. So, there we go.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor Frederick Lugavalt, who will be discussing a chapter taken from the upcoming second volume of his biography of John F. Kennedy. Until then, I hope you stay well. Thank you, and goodbye.